This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are proud to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders whose work on the front lines is bringing innovation and concrete solutions to the challenges of climate change. These women know firsthand the effects of climate change, and they are committed to a livable, sustainable, and equitable world for us all. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. You don't need to be an environmentalist. Begin by being informed. And with that, we invite you to join us for today's conversation with another inspirational woman environmental leader. I'm really delighted to have a very special guest with us today. Joining me is Nina Simons, visionary leader and co-founder of Bioneers, an extraordinary environmentally and ecologically focused conference that is unlike any conference you have ever attended. At Bioneers, art, ceremony, music, and dance come together with speakers and leaders sharing their cutting-edge innovations for restoring the earth and our relationship with each other. Nina, alongside her husband and partner, Kenny Ausubel, has been at the forefront of inspiring change and fostering deeper connections with nature. As Chief Relationship Strategist at Bioneers, Nina has played a pivotal role in shaping its growth and impact. Beyond her work with Bioneers, Nina has explored the realms of leadership, particularly focusing on women's leadership. She is the author of the insightful book, Nature, Culture, and the Sacred, A Woman Listens for Leadership, and co-editor of Moonrise, The Power of Women Leading from the Heart. Nina, your career as a social entrepreneur spans a significant journey, and I've had the privilege of hearing you speak on numerous occasions. It's evident that you constantly strive for personal growth, embracing heart-centered embodiment as a guiding principle for leadership. So I am delighted that you are here to share with us and our listeners your journey and insights. Welcome to Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> what a beautiful intro. I hope I live up to it. <laughs> I'd love to get started with the story of Bioneers. For over 30 years, Bioneers conferences have orchestrated an array of programs and performances with breakthrough solutions to change our relationship with nature and the earth, make connections between ancient indigenous wisdom and modern nature-based solutions, illuminate ways to dismantle corporate power, clean up the oceans, heal inequities of systemic racism, support the next generation youth, and showcase solutions for a regenerative world. Let me know if I left anything out. These yearly gatherings bring together innovators and visionaries with a diversity of ideas whose hearts and minds are united in the belief that we can change the world. So, for the benefit of the audience who may not be familiar with Bioneers, can you tell us the story of how you and Kenny created Bioneers? Well, sure. We were social entrepreneurs, as you mentioned, and we were involved with growing a company startup called Seeds of Change that many of your listeners may have heard of. It was an organic biodiversity seed company. And Kenny was a co-founder of it and started it at about 1989 or 90. And Kenny's also a journalist. And so 
he was researching, and we were both learning hand over fist about biodiversity. And then he got interested in bioremediation, which is the practice of finding various ways to remove toxins from the air and soil and water. And as he was researching, he was discovering amazing people with really interesting, innovative solutions. And one day he was in the hot tub with a friend and he was telling him about all these incredible people. And he said, but the tragedy is no one knows about them. And that friend who was an investor in our company said, why don't you have a conference? And Kenny had never been to a conference. And he said, it sounds boring. Why would I do that? And the friend said, here's a grant for $10,000, have a conference. And Kenny knew that I had a background in theater. And as a result, he came to me and he said, will you help me make a conference? And I also had never been to a conference, Michael. And so with that, we took our beginner's minds and created what we thought would be the most interesting, transformative, experiential, embodied event that we could cook up together. And because we lived in the Southwest and still do, we both have a very strong affinity for indigenous worldviews and indigenous ecological knowledge and wisdom and ways of living. And so indigenous peoples and their perspectives have been central to Bioneers really since the beginning. And I think the only thing that you might have missed a little bit, Michael, in your introduction was to say that for a long time, Bioneers has understood that everything in our human community is a subset of nature. And as a result of that, everything related to social, racial, and gender justice is part of the things we need to find solutions to. And we recognized, as you said, that the mainstream media mostly covers the bad news and knew how much we wanted and needed to cover solutions. And so we started as a conference, largely in response initially to James Hansen sounding the alarm about climate change. And of course, since then, the conference has grown and grown, and the number of areas we cover has grown and grown. And we moved the conference to the Bay Area in 93 or 94, and now we have both an annual conference and a media company with all kinds of platforms and radio and media production that we do. Nina, it's evident that Indigenous wisdom holds a crucial place in the foundation of Bioneers and is one of its unique features, your relationship with the Indigenous tribes, the youth, and the wisdom keepers. Could you tell us about the Indigeneity Program and what it comprises and what it's doing? Sure. The Indigeneity Program is quite amazing. And before I forget, at the end of this, I should tell you one other thing that I think is unique about it. The Indigeneity Program has a lot of aspects to it. It's co-led by two remarkable Indigenous women leaders, and there's now a team of four Indigenous women leaders really implementing it. And it has an education component that is creating curriculum for multicultural education, centering Indigenous history and wisdom and worldviews at its heart. It also has 
a program that's growing in leaps and bounds about the rights of nature. And what we realized, Kenny really realized it, was that the Ho-Chunk Nation, which is based in Wisconsin, actually were the first in the U.S. to adopt the rights of nature into their tribal constitutions. And because tribal nations are sovereign under U.S. legal frameworks, we recognize that this could be a very interesting strategy to help protect and defend resources, water, and ecosystems by starting with tribal communities because they would be more defensible against U.S. corporations because of their sovereignty. And so these women are actually working with a team of Native lawyers to create and offer trainings around the country to tribal leaders and support them in the whole elaborate process of bringing this idea to their tribal councils, of actually embedding it into their tribal constitutions so that it can become a defensible legal framework. And then we also have an indigenous forum at the conference, which is entirely programmed by the indigeneity team and and includes incredible programming that offers insights into native life on Turtle Island in ways that I don't think you get otherwise. And the last piece, I think, is we're producing indigeneity conversations, which are one-on-one interviews typically, again, by our indigeneity team with other indigenous leaders on really key issues of the day. And I think the program is rather unique in that it is run as a sovereign program within Bioneers. So really the leadership of that program has self-determination about what they choose and how they choose it and how fast or slow they're going to grow. And at last year's conference, I think we had, it was the first time we had done a conference in Berkeley and we had over 120 different tribal nations represented there, which was extraordinary. So that's what the Indigeneity program is up to in a nutshell. It's a lot, and they produce amazingly for a small team, but they also are supported by the larger constellation of Bioneers. And the other thing I was going to mention, Michael, is that What Bioneers does, besides integrating all of the justice issues, is we address internal change as well as external solutions and strategies. So we really integrate, I mean, to my way of thinking, it's integrating a feminist perspective that says we have to transform ourselves in order to be the best agents of change that the world needs us to be right now. And so that includes things like How do we reclaim sacred activism and what is needed to cultivate our own resilience and equilibrium in a time that has a tendency to throw us for so many loops? Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. The Indigeneity program is so unique and the resources on your website are extensive. So we will be sure to post a link. As someone who attends Bioneers, I really appreciate being able to sit and listen to these Indigenous leaders. You know, there's a lot of talk in the sustainability community about learning from and implementing the tools of First Peoples, but we don't often have access to the materials or the opportunity, such as the Indigeneity program, which is such a gift. 
Well, thank you for coming to Bioneers. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't realized. Yes, I've been going to Bioneers for about 20 years, and they are always amazing. But the one this year was really especially fun. I kept meeting people who were there for the first time. I met this one woman who told me she quit her corporate job in Florida, got a van, and drove across the United States to attend. So I hope that's inspirational to somebody. I wanted to move on and ask you about your work with women's leadership. The title of your book is Nature, Culture, and the Sacred. But I wanted to start with the subtitle, A Woman Listens for Leadership. This is a unique perspective. So instead of focusing on traditional notions of like training or advancing career moves or leaning in, you highlight the importance of listening as a pathway to leadership, which I find very compelling. Could you share with us your process of listening for leadership? Oh, gosh. Well, the short story about how I got drafted into an inquiry about leadership is that in the late 90s, I got acknowledged for my leadership for the first time, and I found that I didn't like it. And around that same time, I was also in a deep inquiry about how my gender was affecting my experience of my life and my sense of what options were available to me. So, I started on this parallel inquiry about, well, if what I've learned from Bioneers is that the Earth needs us all to be leaders now, and if when I'm awarded and acknowledged for my leadership, I don't like it or want it, I felt like it painted a target on my back, I felt like it described a role that I didn't aspire to. I had all these conflicting emotions, and I, I knew that I was supposed to be flattered, but I really wasn't. So in response to that, partly I started convening groups of women leaders, because I think part of the reason I chose the title I have at Bioneers is because relationship is what I'm most interested in, and what I think I have the greatest natural talent or affinity for. And so I started convening groups of women leaders who were diverse in every way. They were diverse not only in their age and ethnicity, but also in their issue areas, in their orientations, in their class backgrounds. And what I found was that even though they had all been pre-selected for their leadership, they all came saying, oh, I'm not a leader. And I thought, okay, so this is a much bigger problem than me. And as I worked over 20 years with these groups of women leaders, what I found was that we're all reinventing leadership and that we've all inherited these mental models that are yucky. They come from a patriarchal culture and they all tend to describe whether we're conscious of it or not. We think of leaders as like the tall, charismatic white guy in the front of the room who knows all the answers and is aggressive and pushy and cops credit and largely ego-driven. And who wants to aspire to that? But of course, then I knew from Bioneers that there were scores of leaders that I had heard speak at Bioneers who, when I heard them, I just kind of, my jaw dropped open and I thought, I want to be like that one. Oh, I want to be like that. And so I gathered all their speeches. This was for my first book and really sought for patterns among them. 
And what I found was that the ones I most admired were all motivated by a passion, by something on the inside, some sacred calling or sense of purpose that said, I have got to act to defend or protect or reinvent something that I love. Whereas in the conventional model, you know, it's people who have graduate degrees and or inherited wealth or they get a job title or it's all externally conferred authority. Whereas most of them being women, I must say, were inner directed. And, you know, Carl Jung says the feminine is the inner and the masculine is the outer. So how appropriate, therefore, that we would have inherited that model. And they were also people who shared authority, people who lifted other leaders up and who were not driven by a sense of needing of goal orientation, but were equally intent on having a process that was kind and fair and respectful. So that was my first book was sort of how we're redefining leadership. And I listen for leadership all the time. I listen I listen when I sit in the mornings. I listen when I walk my dogs in the woods. I look to nature for models of mentorship and leadership. Of course, I listen at Bioneers all the time, but I feel like I am learning to listen, Michael, with more than my ears. So I listen with my dream time. I listen with my intuition. I listen for phrases that land in me that won't let me go after I've heard them, you know, and I listen a lot of different ways. And I find that the more I come to know myself and trust myself, the more that listening pays off. I agree. I think you're right that there are so many different levels of listening, especially listening with all your senses and even listening to the air, to the earth, to the wind, all of that which informs informs us, informs your leadership, however that shows up. Yeah, I think that's so true, Michael, also because leadership is such a personal practice, and each of us will do it completely differently. And for those of us who happen to be walking this earth with the privileges of white skin and white supremacy culture, we have been culturally trained to talk a lot and to listen less. And so part of my quest is to rebalance the masculine and feminine in us all, which means we've all got to listen more. That's so true. Our propensity to always be talking doesn't create spaces to listen. I wanted to tell you a story that I heard from an indigenous leader in a listening circle, a leader in the, an indigenous leader in the Amazon. I think his name is Eltan Krenak. He was telling about traveling with someone. And at the end of the day, his companion told him that he would always bow. He would put his head on the ground. And being curious, Elton asked why. And his companion said, well, that means that I have this one moment during the day when my heart is higher than my head. Oh, beautiful. Wow. And you know what it reminds me of, too, Michael? That's a beautiful story that I learned some sacred principles from a Peruvian teacher. And it's nine words of wisdom that have guided me through my whole adult life. And they are consciousness creates matter. Language creates reality. Ritual creates relationship. 
And that little ritual that you just described, not only it reminds him that his heart is higher than his head, but it also creates this embodied moment of connection with the earth, which is with his third eye, which is so beautiful, you know? And I have found that ritual is a very practical way that we can all cultivate our own leadership into fuller flourishing. You have some suggestions and practices in your book about cultivating our own leadership and rituals that you've used. Could you, maybe you could tell us about some of those rituals? Sure. Well, when I had this surprising opportunity to make a second edition of this book, it meant that I could bring together two streams of my life. And one was Bioneers, and the other was all of this women's convening work about women's leadership. And over the course of 20 years of convening these diverse groups of women, I had learned a lot about facilitation, about what kinds of inquiries can help us learn more about ourselves and each other. And so when I made this second edition, I did it with a discussion guide and embodied practices so that anyone can use it as a way of facilitating a group or facilitating their own evolution. Rituals, well, some of the practices that I describe can be, most of them can be done individually or in a circle. And I am a great admirer of women's circles because I do think we have often a capacity to see each other better and more clearly than we see ourselves, and that there's something about that solidarity that can happen over time with women who you grow trust with that becomes a very potent ingredient for exponentially growing our own leadership and authority and skills. So one of the practices that I love, we called compost and cauldron. And it's a way of taking a look at yourself. You can do it at the end of the day, before bed, or when you'd first wake up in the morning, or in a circle, reflecting on what you want to compost to give back to the earth. What have you noticed in yourself that is no longer serving you? Like one might say, I'm composting my insecurity about being smart enough and What's sweet about doing it in a circle is you start to realize that these insecurities that we think are so personal, so often we share them with everyone else, or lots of other women anyway. And then what you put in the cauldron is what you are cooking on to strengthen yourself. And so you might say something like, I'm putting into the cauldron how good it felt when I took that risk, telling that woman what I thought, and she was able to hear me and receive it. So it's kind of building the self-confidence about, you know, acknowledging yourself for doing something well. It's social scientists have long observed that in this culture, when we raise boys, we raise them to crow about every achievement, but not so the girls, right? So we need practice at crowing. And so this is kind of related to that. And in terms of rituals, I mean, I can tell you one related to my body and one related to the land. I realized early on in my own process that when I got out of the shower in the morning, 
I would look at my body in the mirror and I'd have all these voices go off about my belly being too round or my butt being too wide or my, you know, all those voices that, again, so many of us have. And one day I realized, oh, I'm doing violence to myself every morning. I don't want to do that. I need to change this. And so I made up a ritual and I got a skin oil that I liked. You can choose one of many oils. And I put essential oils into it that I loved the smell of in the morning. And each morning when I get out of the shower, I anoint my body with that scented oil. And as I do it, I pour love and gratitude into my body. I thank it for all the ways it supports me and strengthens me. It's an example of something that only takes two or three minutes a day. And what I have found about these rituals is if you do them holding yourself really accountable for doing them every single day, somewhere around six to eight weeks, I start to notice a change in myself. And sometimes I'll continue them and sometimes I'll let it taper off. But last summer in New Mexico, we had the largest wildfire in New Mexico's history. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And because we live at the edge of the National Forest and the fire was getting closer, it got rather scary. We had to have all of our windows closed and air purifiers in the house. And, and I felt as though my animal body was tense to flee at any moment. And I called up a friend who lives in Northern California who I knew had practices that had helped her protect her home. And I asked her if she could teach me anything that could help me protect our home. And she said, yes, create an altar around a tree near your house, one that you particularly resonate with, and deck it with flowers, cut flowers. And every day or as often as you can each week, pour water around the base of the trunk and sometimes pour wine. And when you do those things, send prayers into the roots of the tree, send gratitude into the branches, send your asking for forgiveness to the mountain nearby, and ask the tree, the roots, the branches, the sky people, and the mountain to protect your home. And I did that. And again, I knew from experience that I had to be really rigorous about doing it every day. And what I found, Michael, was that it felt as though I deepened my relationship to being held and grateful to the land for everything that we have received since we've lived on it. And instead of tending the land now, I really feel like the land tends us. And the fire eventually went out. That was so beautiful. Reflecting back on those rituals, I can relate to all of them, and they are definitely rich aspects of leadership. Well, and I think part of my definition around leadership is that I hope I'm continuing to cultivate myself and learn until the day I die. I don't think of leadership as an end point anymore. I think of it as an ongoing, lifelong cultivation. Right. Leadership doesn't have to have an endpoint. And if you're in a circle, you can pick any endpoint you like. 
Nina, you, you we're going to post the links to your book, to Bioneers, and to the Indigeneity program on our website. Is there anything else you would like to share with us about the work you're doing? Well, I'm getting ready to teach some online courses. So, oh, so in it's ritual? Good to, well, sort of. The first one is going to be in August, and it's on a new platform that Bioneers has been developing called Bioneers Learning. And it's sort of an online school. So I'm going to be teaching a course on sacred activism because me and my co-teacher both believe that our culture has separated those to our detriment and that we need to bring them back together. So that should be very rich. And then I'm working on developing some online teaching in the winter based on the nature culture and the sacred book. So it'll be a course in cultivating your own leadership. So exciting and so needed. Nina, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. And I'm really grateful for your willingness to share with us stories from your own personal experience and your journey. Actually, there's one other URL that I should let folks know about, which is if you go to bioneers.org slash ncsbook, then you'll be able to download a free introduction to the book. Oh, lovely. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. Yes, yes. And there's a great newsletter, so sign up for it, and then you'll know about everything Bioneers is doing. I always ask my guests if there is any other woman, environmentalist or not, who has inspired you or who continues to inspire you. Your book is full of stories of inspirational women, but just in case there is one woman in particular that you would like to highlight, Please feel free. One of my greatest inspirations, really for the last 30 years, has been Terry Tempest Williams. I just love the way that she listens, the way that she integrates every inquiry as it unfolds in her life, the way that she transcends cubbyholes and boxes, and her integration of poetry and activism and spiritual inquiry and teaching, and I find her quite amazing and a woman of great, great depth. Nina, thank you again. It's been delightful. I hope to see you at the next Pioneers. I hope so too, Michael. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Yes. Bye. Bye. And with that, we conclude another inspiring episode of Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. We're immensely grateful to our guests who have shared their expertise, insights, and passions. Remember, it's through collaboration and collective action that we can drive meaningful change. Let's continue to support and uplift each other on this journey towards a sustainable future. Because we are not planning on Mars as our next destination. Right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing more stories from these women working on climate change solutions. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are a 501c3 and gratefully accept your donations to keep us going. Remember, stay passionate and keep envisioning a better world. Until next time...